Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome to another edition of Then and Now. Let's pray before we begin. Almighty and all-wise shepherd of our souls, the one and only true God of all the ages, from eternity past to all eternity future. We praise you for creating us and allowing us to be a part of your holy people for your own glory. We are like sheep who constantly wander away from your flock and need to be rescued from the wolves and lions that are constantly prowling around looking for someone to devour. Help us in these podcasts to learn how to tune out all the railing voices of skepticism and confusion that are howling around us and to have our faith renewed in a better understanding of your holy word. Help us to see how to apply it to our lives in a way that lets your light shine through us to enlighten others around us and draw them closer to you. We pray this in the name of our matchless Savior and Lord, Jesus. Amen. Last time we looked at the ideas of some fellow preterists who are teaching that we are in heaven now, with our immortal bodies now, and have perfection now, but without any hope of a better life after we die. Just more of the same old temptation, sin, and human weaknesses to deal with in the afterlife. What a dismal view of the afterlife. If that is all we have to hope for in the afterlife, then why bother trying to live righteously and godly in this present life? Why not live it up now in our short life here on earth if we're going to have a whole eternity to continue working on our sanctification? If the afterlife is going to just be more of the same kind of struggle with temptation and sin that we are going through here, then how is that far better than our life now? That is not very good news to me, and I trust it's probably not good news to any of our listeners. I want to share a part of an email that I received this week from one of our listeners who heard the sermon where it was suggested that in our afterlife we will continue to be burdened with temptation and sin. Here's what our fellow listener said about that sermon. I certainly hope that my efforts toward sanctification ends when I cross the finish line of this life and that I do not continue to struggle with the things that burden me in this life. I cannot imagine being angry or covetous or vindictive or jealous forever. I believe that statement regarding nothing changing in the afterlife is a very dangerous conclusion. I think it is such a severe departure from anything ever deemed Christian that I believe it is a fatally flawed, destructive conclusion. I saw this coming a year ago in my many discussions with other advocates of the collective body view. It's a natural byproduct of that view. So it seems that you are saying that Jesus' death on the cross was merely symbolic. 
it removes our sin as far as the east is from the west, but in the end, even after departing this earthly tent, it remains as pernicious as it ever was, and it will follow me for eternity? That's the worst good news I've ever heard. This is the product of the collective body view. It forces some to conclude that there's nothing after AD 70, others to surmise that sin no longer exists. And now this, where we suffer in this pitiful estate forever. Something is drastically wrong, and I think it begins with our understanding of Genesis. I believe that if this view is not immediately and summarily recanted, it will negatively affect the way people view preterism, and those effects will reverberate for years to come. The Apostle Paul didn't risk life and limb in his temporal state of struggle to breathe his last and find the same struggle with sin in the afterlife. If we never actually possess and experience the benefits of the new covenant in this life, except in some sort of cosmic non-cognitive sense, we are a most pitiful people indeed. If the no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain is never translated from the spiritual to the actual, perceived and realized, what ultimate value is it? If we believe this is only talking about a change in covenants, I think we are enmeshed in a system that is blinding us to the truth. Notice what John says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. If heaven is not a state of perfection, and if what we have right now is all there is, we have rejected one of the most important benefits and tenets of Christianity. Will Christ need to die again as we murder one another in heaven? I believe the entire Bible speaks of eternal perfection, and if that is not readily evident, I think there is a serious flaw somewhere in our interpretation. For the past six to eight months, I have been reevaluating these things, and I am very, very saddened by the happenings within preterism. But I think the collective body view is at the hub of it all. So interested have we been in distancing ourselves from dispensationalism that I think we've discarded some things that should have remained. We have spiritualized some things that are actual and within the cognitive realm. For instance, the phrase face-to-face is used 13 times in Scripture, and never once is it allegorized. That is the phrase that is used in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, 
to describe what the saints would get when the perfect came. He says here in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. I don't believe this text is only a reference to the changing of the covenants. I think Paul is saying that his generation of living saints would soon see Jesus face to face, not merely in some ethereal or spiritualized sense, but in reality. And the perfect happened at the parousia. But the perfect was not the parousia. The perfect was when they were changed in the twinkling of an eye and stood in the very presence of perfection I realize this is not consistent with the collective body view and that it has been resoundingly mocked. But I believe that we need to pursue a different path. It has taken a while, but I have fully rejected the collective body view. I no longer see it as a viable alternative. Well, now, that was a very strong statement about the negative implications of the collective body view. But it needed to be said, and I pray that any of our fellow preterists who have been confused and misled by the collective body view will take these words to heart. Something this dear brother said in his email that we just read was especially interesting to me. Notice he said that This idea of no perfection in the afterlife is a product of the collective body view. Uh, It forces some, such as Chris Camilo, to conclude that there's nothing after 70 AD. Others to surmise that sin no longer exists. And now this, where we suffer in this pitiful estate forever. Something is drastically wrong, and I think it begins with our understanding of Genesis. Indeed, it has everything to do with our understanding of Genesis, and here is why. We come to different conclusions about the resurrection and the afterlife because we each start with different concepts of what death and life really are. In other words, We differ on the interpretation of the last things in the book of Revelation because we differ on our understanding of the first things in the book of Genesis. The way we define death of Adam in Genesis will determine the way we understand the resurrection in the book of Revelation. We need to know what we lost in the Garden of Eden so that we can understand what Christ restored to us in the paradise of heaven. Every theologian knows that his theological system must be built on a solid interpretation of Genesis chapter 3, or it is just a house of cards built on shifting sand. That is where all theologies of the resurrection must start. At the beginning, in Genesis where death first appeared as the ultimate enemy of mankind. We absolutely must know what 
kind of death was threatened against mankind and what kind of death they actually died on the day they ate the fruit. So we will begin our study of the resurrection by looking at the death which entered the world through sin. We will examine Adam's original condition at creation, the ultimate destiny of mankind, the function of the two trees, the kind of death that God threatened and which they actually experienced on that day, as well as the promise of redemption from that death by resurrection. Notice what Apostle Paul said about the connection between Genesis and resurrection. In Romans chapter 5, 12, he says, By one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men. He goes on to say that the thing that causes death is sin. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And so there is a direct connection there between Genesis and the origin of sin and death and the resurrection that comes through Christ Jesus, who is the son of Adam and the prophesied son who would bring recovery from that death that Adam and Eve brought on mankind. Well, let's look at Adam's original condition at creation. In what condition was Adam created? Mortal or immortal? To answer this question, we first need to know the definitions of mortal and immortal. Mortality means both able to die and subject to death, while immortality means not subject to death nor even able to die. Question, was Adam created already mortal in the sense that he was already subject to death and destined to die even though he had not sinned yet? Or was he created already immortal in the sense that he could not die even if he ate from the forbidden fruit? I would hope that you answered no to both of those questions. That means there is a third possibility which is that Adam was created neither mortal nor immortal, but with the possibility of becoming either, depending on his obedience or disobedience to the command of not to eat of that tree. He was not created mortal since he was not yet subject to death before the fall, nor already destined to die. He would only become mortal condemned to die, subject to death, destined to die, if he ate from the forbidden fruit. Nor was he already immortal, since immortality is not something you can lose. Once you have it, you can't lose it. Adam was capable of sinning and dying, so he was not immortal at his creation. In the case of Jesus before the cross, he said that Satan had nothing on him. No one could convict him of sin. He had life in himself, just like the Father did. No one could take it from him. He had the power to lay it down and the power to pick it back up again. 
He said that if the temple of his body was torn down, he would raise it back up again in three days. He had the keys to death and Hades. Death had no power over him. His body was not subject to decay, nor could his soul be abandoned to Hades. No other man could say any of this except Adam before his fall into sin. This is one of the reasons why Jesus is called the last Adam. Jesus evidently had the same kind of body that Adam had before the fall. Now, there may have been some differences, but those differences especially appear when we see Adam sin and when we see Jesus remaining sinless. Neither one were subject to death yet, and neither one were destined to die yet, and yet they were both able to die. After Adam sinned, no one could have that kind of body again until Jesus came. Because Jesus was sinless, he was not subject to death. The only way he could ever die was if he himself laid his life down of his own initiative, as it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 14. No one could take his life from him. He was therefore not mortal in its fullest sense because he was not subject to death like other human beings were. Nor was he fully immortal, unable to die, since he was able to die if he chose to. He tasted death for everyone, Hebrews 2 verse 9. His body appears to have been like the pre-fall body of Adam, made of dust and able to die, but not subject to decay. Notice that Jesus said, he could lay his self-same body down and pick it back up again. No one else is able to do that. The rest of us have to get a new body that is like his glorious immortal body. Jesus was able to die if he wished, but was not subject to death nor required to die because he had never sinned. Only the pre-fall Adam and the sinless last Adam had this kind of body. When Adam sinned, his body became mortal, subject to death, and destined to return to dust, Genesis 3, verse 19. But since Jesus never sinned, his body was never mortal in that fuller sense, never subject to death and decay, as we learn in Acts chapter 2, verse 24, verse 27, and verse 31. Jesus' body was never corrupted by sin, so it could not return to dust. It could not decay. It could not suffer corruption. Jesus could lay it down and pick it back up again. So we need to ask, what kind of body did Christ have, and when was it changed? The Gospel of John indicates that Jesus came back from Hades three days later and picked up his self-same body with the visible nail prints and spear wound in it, John 20, verses 24 through 28. His body was not changed at the resurrection, as Murray Harris and others have mistakenly supposed. It was the self-same body that he had before the cross, it was not changed and glorified until the ascension. This is an extremely important point which most futurists and preterists have grossly misunderstood. 
Since Jesus is the only one who never sinned, he is the only one who could ever permanently get his self-same body back. Everyone else has to get a new body that is like Christ's glorious body. When Christ ascended, he was still in his self-same body. But at the ascension, it was changed from flesh and bones to a glorious and immortal body that could inhabit heaven. It was still the self-same body, but now changed into a new kind of spiritual, glorified, immortal, heavenly body. Most of us in the past have assumed that the kinds of miracles Jesus performed after his resurrection were of a higher sort, implying that his body had been changed at the resurrection and was now capable of much greater things. However, when we take a closer look at the things he did before the cross and compare them with his miraculous appearances after the resurrection, we will see that there really was no significant difference at all. After he came back out of Hades and picked up his self-same unchanged body, he was able to appear and disappear, Mark 16, verse 14. He was able to appear in a different form to his disciples, Mark 16, verse 12, and appear in the middle of a room without entering through the door, John 20, verse 26. Many have suggested that these miraculous appearances reflected new capabilities that Jesus did not have before, which he must have acquired at the resurrection. However, that is simply not the case. Consider the following. Those miracles after the resurrection are of the same kind he had already performed before the cross, thus showing that his body was still the self-same unchanged body they had known before the cross. For example, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 8, verse 59, and chapter 12, verse 36, it says that Jesus did a vanishing act on at least two different occasions before the cross. John 8, verse 59, and John 12, verse 36. Furthermore, in his hometown of Nazareth, a crowd from the synagogue tried to push him over the cliff but he passed right through them as if they were not even there. Luke 4, verse 28 through 30. There is also the account in Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, of Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee to join his disciples in the boat. He even enabled Peter to walk on the water on that occasion. Furthermore, as soon as both of them got into the boat, the wind stopped, as it had on other occasions, when Jesus calmed the storm. In John's account of one of these occasions, he tells us that as soon as Jesus got into the boat, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. John 6, verse 21. They were snatched away instantaneously in the boat from the middle of the lake to the shore which was about three miles away. All of these miracles before the cross are at least as significant as anything he performed during his post-resurrection appearances, suggesting that his body possessed no greater powers after the resurrection than it had exhibited before the cross, implying that it was, in fact, 
the self-same, unchanged body. Furthermore, when Jesus appeared to them in the upper room, he insisted that it was, I myself, touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Then to further confirm that he was in his self-same unchanged physical body, he asked them if there was anything to eat. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. How much clearer can it get? The disciples were convinced. They knew they did not see a ghost. They recognized the self-same body of Jesus with whom they had traveled around Palestine for three years. So, if he was raised out of Hades back into his self-same, unchanged flesh-and-bones body, when was his body changed for his dwelling in heaven? The ascension would be the perfect time to posit that change and glorification. Jesus himself said in John 17 that when he returned to the Father, he would again share the Father's glory as he had done before the worlds were in existence. John 17 verse 5. Combine that with Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7, which talks about him laying aside his glorious form to put on a lowly fleshly body at the incarnation. What is the implication? It means that at the ascension, Jesus put on his glorious form once again. That appears to be what both Paul and John are implying when they said that we no longer know Christ according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16, and that even though they did not know what kind of bodies the living would receive at the parousia, they did know that they would be like Christ's glorious body, 1 John 3, verse 2. Now, did you catch that? Their bodies would be changed. And he's talking to living people who would live and remain alive until the parousia, at which time they would have their bodies changed to be like Christ's glorious body. That's talking about the bodily change of the living. We already know the resurrected dead got new bodies, but Paul and John here are talking about the change that the living would enjoy at the parousia. Their bodies would be changed from mortal to immortal. They would get a new body that was like Christ's glorious body. They would have their bodies changed into that kind of glorious immortal body. This implies that the individual mortal and corruptible bodies of the living saints would be changed to be like Christ's glorious immortal body in heaven at the parousia, so that they could dwell in heaven where flesh and blood bodies could not dwell. Their bodies needed to be changed so that they could dwell in heaven with Christ. Neither Christ's flesh and bones body nor the flesh and blood bodies of the living saints could dwell in heaven. They had to be changed first. And we see that change for Christ occur at the ascension. Well, what was the ultimate destiny of mankind from the very beginning? Did God in Genesis have at the beginning, even before the fall, a heavenly destiny in mind for mankind? I believe he did. 
and here's why. Even before Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden, heaven was always their ultimate destiny, and not just remaining in the garden on earth forever. If they had not sinned, they would not have died physically. Instead, they would have finished out the days of their probationary test in the garden and then be changed into their immortal form and be taken to heaven to live with God forever. Enoch may have been an example of what would have happened to Adam if he had passed the test. They would have been changed and taken to heaven without suffering physical death. Here is how the 4th century church father, Augustine, explained it in his comments on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, If Adam had not sinned, he would not have been divested of his body, but would have been clothed upon, superinvested, with immortality and incorruption, that his mortal body might have been absorbed by life, that is, that he might have passed from his natural body to the spiritual body. But notice here, Augustine, who was the 4th century church father, interprets 2 Corinthians 5 as a bodily change for the living at the parousia. Let's talk about the tree of life and the probationary test. Adam and Eve were told that they could freely eat of all the trees in the garden, including the tree of life except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This implies that they ate from the tree of life on a daily or regular basis. And that is exactly how we see the tree of life functioning in the new paradise in Revelation 21 through 22. The leaves of that tree in Revelation are for the healing of the nations, meant to be consumed on a daily basis like the manna, in the wilderness. It heals all our diseases of the soul and rejuvenates our spirits continually. These three verses, Genesis 2 verse 9, verse 16, and chapter 3 verse 2, show that Adam and Eve were commanded to eat freely from it every day if they wished. There is nothing here stating or even implying that it was a once-for-all eating only. Instead, it was the regular eating of it which sustained their physical health and longevity until the probationary period would have been finished. But they fell into sin long before the test was over. If they had remained in the garden and continued eating from the tree of life after they sinned, it would have sustained their physical life forever in a spiritually fallen and separated condition. That is why they had to be removed from the garden, and that removal from the garden would force them to eventually succumb to physical death since they could no longer have access to the tree. Well, this brings us to another question about the Genesis account of Adam and Eve and the fall. We need to ask, what kind of death did God threaten against them? Was it physical, spiritual, or eternal, or all of the above? None of us would deny that they died on that day in some sense, relationally, covenantally, judicially, spiritually, or positionally. 
And that spiritual death meant that unless a redeemer, the son of Adam, died in their place, they would ultimately be cast into the second death or eternal death in the lake of fire. They obviously did not personally die physically on that day. So how can we believe that physical death was actually threatened by God? On the day you eat, you shall surely die. However, it is obvious from the conversation between Satan and Eve that she understood the threat to include physical death, since she connected physical death with eating the physical fruit. Where did she get that idea? Obviously from Adam. Well, where did Adam get it? Obviously from God. Also, Jesus crushed the serpent's head by dying physically to atone for their sin. His physical death on the cross as a substitute for Adam and Eve would make little sense if the death threatened against Adam and Eve did not at least include physical death. Furthermore, as we will see shortly, we can know that physical death was included in the threat since Adam and Eve actually did die physically on that day in a very important judicial and sacrificial sense. Well, you might ask, how in the world did they die physically on that day, in any kind of a sense? Well, when God killed a sacrificial animal to provide skins for them to cover their nakedness, that sacrificial lamb died in their place. They died with that lamb on that day and put on the skin of that lamb to cover their guilt and shame. They also died relationally, covenantally, or judicially, in the sense that they were now condemned, separated, and mortal, subject to death, and destined to die physically. All humanity who were in the loins of Adam at that point died with Adam on that day. When the lamb died physically on that day, they died with it, just like we die with Christ on the day of our conversion. We are united with his death so that we can put on his new life. They put on the skins of the sacrificial lamb in the same way we put on Christ in our conversion, which points forward to the time when we will put on our new immortal bodies and go to heaven. We can only imagine the horror that gripped the emotions of Adam and Eve as they watched God slay the sacrificial lamb in front of them. They saw the death tremors of the sheep as the blood spurted out of its veins and it died. Adam and Eve died with that lamb on that very day. They knew that the death which the lamb suffered was what they themselves deserved. The innocent lamb died in their place. They were now fully mortal, subject to death, and destined to die physically. Their souls would go to Sheol or Hades, and their bodies would return to dust permanently. Someday, at the time of the end, when the son of Adam would crush the serpent's head, God would raise their disembodied souls out of Sheol and give them new immortal bodies with which to live 
in heaven. The skin of the lamb pointed to their new immortal bodies, which God would provide through the death of his sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God provided the lamb, his own dear son, just like he provided the ram to Abraham on Mount Moriah. When we die with him and put on the garments of Christ, we are given hope of life in heaven with a new immortal body like Christ. Our old bodies return to dust permanently, and God gives us new bodies. The Bible uses all this language that we find in Genesis in reference to Christ, implying that he fulfills the original lamb typology that we find there in the Garden of Eden on the day that they ate from the forbidden fruit. God promised a Redeemer, and the sacrificial system was instituted on that very day to bear witness to the coming son of Adam, who would be the Lamb of God to take away the power of sin and death. They died with that Lamb on that day, and thus began the redemptive drama through the substitutionary sacrificial system. Adam and Eve still had to die physically, but a human substitute would come to actually die in their place and give them real covering for their spiritual nakedness and the very kind of immortal body that they needed to live in heaven with God. Christ was not just a physical sacrifice. He was also a spiritual sacrifice, slain to provide not only a covering for our guilt and shame here in this life, but also to provide eternal clothing, new immortal bodies just like his, to cover our sins forever in heaven. Those skins proved that a sacrificial death had taken place to cover their sins. They were testimony to both their guilt and their forgiveness. They were signs of a covenant based on substitutionary sacrifice. Here is how Adam Clark explains this. God made coats of skins. It is very likely that the skins out of which their clothing was made were taken off animals whose blood had been poured out as a sin offering to God. For as we find Cain and Abel offering sacrifices to God, we may fairly presume that God had given them instructions on this. Nor is it likely that the notion of a sacrifice could have ever occurred to the mind of man without an express revelation from God. Hence, we may safely infer that as Adam and Eve needed this clothing as soon as they fell, it is most likely that the skins were taken off victims offered under the direction of God himself and in faith of him who in the fullness of time was to make an atonement by his death. And it seems reasonable also that this matter should be brought about in such a way that Satan and death should have no triumph. When the very first death that took place in the world was an emblem and type of that death which should conquer Satan, destroy his empire, reconcile God to man, 
convert man to God, sanctify human nature, and prepare it for heaven. That's in Adam Clark's commentary on the whole Bible uh, in his comments on Genesis 3, verse 21. John Calvin seems to have left his options open for an approach very much like this. He includes at least three ideas in his explanation of the kind of death that God threatened and which Adam and Eve actually died on that day. Those three kinds of death are, number one, began to die physically, number two, spiritual death, and number three, condemned to eventually die physically. Notice also that he follows Augustine in suggesting that an unfallen Adam would have passed into heaven without death and without injury. Think about the implications of that. Here's what Calvin says in his commentaries on Genesis 2, verse 17. Quote, But it is asked, what kind of death God means in this place? It appears to me that the definition of this death is to be sought from its opposite. We must, I say, remember from what kind of life man fell. He was, in every respect, happy. His life, therefore, had a like respect to his body and his soul, since in his soul a right judgment and a proper government of the affections prevailed. There also life reigned. In his body there was no defect. Wherefore he was wholly free from death. His earthly life truly would have been temporal, yet he would have passed into heaven without death and without injury if he had never sinned. Death, therefore, is now a terror to us. First, because there is a kind of annihilation as it respects the body. Then, because the soul feels the curse of God. We must also see what is the cause of death, namely alienation from God. Thence it follows that under the name of death is comprehended all those miseries in which Adam involved himself by his defection. For as soon as he revolted from God, the fountain of life, he was cast down from his former state. In order that he might perceive the life of man without God to be wretched and lost, and therefore differing nothing from death. Hence the condition of man after his sin is not improperly called both the privation of life and death. The miseries and evils both of soul and body with which man is beset so long as he is on earth are a kind of entrance into death, till death itself entirely absorbs him. For the scripture everywhere calls those dead who, being oppressed by the tyranny of sin and Satan, breathe nothing but their own destruction. Wherefore, the question is superfluous. How it was that God threatened death to Adam on the day in which he should touch the fruit, when he long deferred the punishment. For then was Adam consigned to death, and death began its reign in him until supervening grace should bring a remedy. Now, it's interesting there that he 
makes a couple of points that Adam, if he had not sinned, would have passed into heaven without physical death. Keep in mind, this is John Calvin saying this. This is not Ed Stevens. John Calvin taught that if Adam had not sinned, he would have passed into heaven without experiencing physical death. His body would have been changed from mortal to immortal. He also says here that the punishment upon Adam and Eve was deferred or postponed until a substitute could arrive to bring a remedy to their death. Very interesting comments there. And I have a PDF uh, lesson outline which covers all this in a lot more detail with a lot more quotes from Augustine and several other modern scholars who teach the same thing that we've just looked at here in Calvin. And if you'd like to have that PDF lesson outline, it's entitled The Fall of Adam. And I'd recommend that you uh, get that and read it. It'll give you a lot more details on all this. Simply email me and request it. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Now I want to talk about the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first utterance of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God promised a Redeemer, and the sacrificial system was instituted that very day to bear witness to the coming son of Adam, who would be the Lamb of God, to take away the power of sin and death. They died with that lamb on that day, and thus began the redemptive drama through substitutionary sacrifices. Adam and Eve still had to die physically, but a human substitute would come to actually die in their place and give them real covering for their spiritual nakedness, the very kind of immortal body that they needed to live in heaven with God. That sacrificial lamb was also prefigured in the sacrifice of a lamb by Abraham on Mount Moriah, and again in the original Passover in Egypt. Notice also that John the Baptist referred to Jesus as the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, and the book of Revelation pictures Jesus before the throne of God standing as if he was a slain lamb. The sacrificial lamb typology is found throughout both covenants, from Genesis to Revelation. However, until that Redeemer came, they would have to die. Their bodies would return to dust permanently, and their disembodied souls would have to wait in Sheol, held in captivity by Satan, until the final resurrection and judgment. Both the wicked and the righteous went to Sheol. This is where Samuel went, and the necromancer at Endor disturbed him from his rest in Sheol to inquire about the fate of Saul the next day in battle. Samuel shows that he was not unconscious in Sheol. He was aware of what was happening in Israel and knew what was going to happen to Saul the next day. Also, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus in a transfigured form on the Mount of Transfiguration. They also were aware of what was happening and discussed with Jesus his impending death on the cross. 
Luke 16 also gives an accurate representation of Sheol or Hades by showing that both the righteous and wicked were in the Hadean realm, but were separated by a great divide. The good part of Hades was called Abraham's bosom or paradise, and the bad side of Hades was referred to as Tartarus. If we say that Luke 16 does not provide an accurate picture of Hades, then we are charging Jesus with misrepresenting reality in his teaching. It does not matter if it is a parable or not. All of Jesus' teaching, whether parable or discourse, represented the true nature of reality. Jesus never distorted or twisted or misrepresented reality. And by the way, who is the creator of heaven and earth and Sheol and Hades? You guessed it, Jesus. There is no one who would know the true nature of the Hadean realm as well as the creator does. Surely we do not want to charge the creator of Hades with misrepresenting the nature of Hades, do we? And notice Luke 16 shows that they were conscious there and they were separated into two different compartments. This means that Luke 16 must be accurately representing the Hadean realm. If so, then the ideas of soul sleep, annihilationism, and universalism are totally refuted. So, in the Old Testament before Christ, when people died, their bodies returned to dust and their disembodied souls, which were conscious, went to Sheol or Hades. Both the wicked and the righteous went to Sheol, and they were held captive there until the coming of the Son of Adam to redeem them. Okay, notice in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, it says this, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice him, through his death, Jesus rendered the devil powerless over the souls of men, those who were subject to slavery all their lives and subject to captivity after their death. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 now says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, he says, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Notice what it says there in all those three passages about 
their souls being held in captivity in Sheol, and that Jesus was the one who came to redeem their souls from Sheol and to bring life and immortality to light. I think you can see from even this little bit of study in Genesis that the subject of resurrection is not difficult to understand if we let Genesis define for us the kind of death that needed to be overcome by Christ. As we noticed, the death was both physical and spiritual. The spiritual death condemned them and separated them from their fellowship with God. Eventually, physical death disembodied them, put their souls in Sheol, and returned their bodies to dust. Christ was the son of Adam. He was the son of man. That's what that phrase, son of man, means. It's referring to son of man, and the word man there is the same word as Adam in the Hebrew. And so when Jesus talks about the son of man, he's referring to himself as being the son of Adam, who who would redeem their souls from Sheol and snatch them back out of Satan's control and take them to heaven to be with him forever afterwards. So he was the son of Adam that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the seed of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. All those who sinned like Adam, who have put their trust in the last Adam, now have the same hope for a new immortal body and life in heaven forever. That includes us today. We have that same promise and that same hope for a new immortal body and life in heaven because of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. Death entered the world through the sin of Adam, and the last Adam conquered the eternal consequences of that sin and death by giving his life in our place. Well, I trust that that helps all of us understand exactly what kind of death Genesis was talking about and what kind of death they actually died with Christ on the very day that they sinned in the garden. Jesus was the fulfillment of that sacrifice of a lamb in the garden. And they died with that lamb on that day. And they put on the skins of that lamb, typifying the new immortal bodies that we get when we die as well. It is spine-tingling and goosebump-generating to see how God planned and orchestrated His redemptive plan from Genesis to Revelation. The sacrificial typology of atonement, propitiation, and redemption was there from the very beginning of the world. There really was a lamb who was slain at the very foundation of the world. Jesus fulfilled that lamb typology perfectly. What a glorious Savior we have. What a great salvation. We looked at the death that began to have its effect upon mankind there in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning in Genesis. And one of the things that this implies, of course, is that Genesis is a literal historical account of the entrance of death into the world. Now, you're not going to see that in some of the other preterist views of Genesis. 
For instance, the covenant creationists that were started by Tim Martin in his book on Beyond Creation Science, he takes a very allegorical and typological view of Genesis, not a historical view. And we need to keep that in mind as we look at Genesis here, because if Genesis is nothing more than a typological allegory of God's relationship with Israel, then that nullifies the historical value of the book of Genesis. And that means that Adam and Eve were not the first two human beings after all, and that they are only mythological or allegorical or typological figures invented for the purpose of representing Israel. But I think we need to see in the book of Genesis that it's historical and that it's literally talking about two original human beings that were created by God who actually did fall into sin and bring all mankind under sin and death. We will continue looking at the subject of death and resurrection in a couple more sessions. Well, that will do it for this time. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now where we study the past to shape a better future.